Hi, I'm Zibby Owens, and you're listening to the award-winning podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Please sign up for my newsletter at zibbyowens.com for weekly updates about my podcasts, events, and more. Also, follow me on Instagram at zibbyowens and also at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. And finally, join my virtual book club called Zibby's Virtual Book Club, which meets every other Tuesday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time until 3 p.m. and features half an hour of book club discussion, followed by 30 minutes of Q&A with the author whose book we've just discussed. You can sign up on my website, zibbyowens.com, under the virtual book club section, or even on Instagram under the link in my bio. I hope you'll find me in all these different channels and enjoy this podcast. The sponsor for this whole Labor Day Book Blast week is firstbook.org. Obviously, the pandemic is crippling education for millions of students, especially those in low-income communities. The widening digital divide and extended quote-unquote summer slide due to COVID is devastating. Apparently, 40% lack access to reliable internet and functioning digital devices they can use for online learning, making the need for physical books and resources to prevent further educational backsliding absolutely critical. Firstbook breaks down the barriers to education for children living in low-income communities by providing its network of more than 475,000 educators serving children in need with free and affordable new high-quality books, educational resources, and basic needs items through the award-winning First Book Marketplace nonprofit e-commerce site. They need your support to ensure these children have what they need to learn during this critical time. Visit firstbook.org to help I was so honored to interview Ken Follett, who is one of the world's best love authors, selling more than 170 million copies of his 32 books. Follett's first bestseller was Eye of the Needle, a spy story set in the Second World War. In 1989, The Pillars of the Earth was published and has since become Follett's most popular novel. It reached number one on bestseller lists around the world and was an Oprah's book club pick. Its sequels, World Without End and A Column of Fire, proved equally popular, and the Kingsbridge series has sold more than 40 million copies worldwide. Follett lives in Hertfordshire, England, with his wife Barbara. Between them, they have five children, six grandchildren, and two Labradors, and his new book is called The Evening and the Morning. Hello, Zibby. Hi, how are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. Thank you so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. It's a pleasure. Oh. Well, I have to tell you that I grew up with your books all over my house and I called my dad and I was like, dad, guess who I'm interviewing? And he was like, oh, those are amazing. I read like he read almost all your books and thought they were just fast paced and thrilling and amazing. And I feel like now that I have your new one, I can't wait to give it to him. So I'm thrilled. <laughs> That's great. So how do you do it? How do you keep creating these new world and writing for year, decade after decade in such a powerful way? Like, how do you come up with all these ideas? Uh, Well, (laughs) I I don't have to do anything else. (laughs) 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 I sit here all day and come up with ideas. So it's not like I'm trying to fit this in. Uh, (laughs) It's been my job for 45 years. And of course, like all authors, I was born with a vivid imagination. I mean, it, it, nobody becomes an author without that. And it's sometimes hard for people to understand. I mean, you, you asked me the question that we're always asked, where'd you get your ideas? And it's hard. The point is that they come to us all the time. You know, when I was a boy, I was never myself. I was always a pirate or a cowboy or the captain of a spaceship. I spent my childhood pretending to be somebody else. 
And now I've spent my most of my working life imagining stuff. And it comes, you know, and it's these ideas come sometimes when you don't want them. You know, they, you're having a nice conversation with somebody and you, you suddenly think to yourself, what would happen if there was an earthquake now? What would we do? Where would we go? <laughs> you know, so the answer is they come easily. Of course, the trick is, the more difficult thing is to share them with people. And that's important. Uh, you know, that's a, that's a, the craft. That's the skill of what we do, to write things down in such a way that when people are reading them, they can enter into what we've imagined and it will be vivid for them and they'll care about it. Wow. And so how do you do that? <laughs> how do you hone, how did you hone your craft? Like when you started at the very beginning of your career and you tried doing this, did it come out like this? Like, do you feel yourself getting better over time? Did it all come naturally or did you have other tricks and tools in your toolbox that, that made it what it is today? Well, I think for all authors, you learn nearly everything that you need to know by reading. All of us, I never met an author who wasn't a voracious reader from a very young age. I learned to read when I was four years old. And I learned, I made my mother teach me to read because I loved stories. And I was always pestering people to read to me. I can remember this. It's my earliest memory, actually. And I, you know, both my parents, all four grandparents would read to me. I had lots of, both my parents come from big families. I had lots of uncles and aunts. And there were loads of people to read to me, and it was never enough. Was, you know, I'd say, read me another one. And they'd say, no, that's enough for today, Ken. I'd say, oh, please, please. You know, you can imagine, can't you? And so I wanted to, desperately, desperately wanted to learn to read. And I learned to read young, and I've been doing it ever since. So by the time you get to your early 20s, and you sit down to try and write some fiction, you know a heck of a lot. You know you know what a sentence is and a paragraph and a chapter. You know about dialogue. You know about describing landscape and describing people because you read so much of that. Of course, it's not enough, <laughs> but it's most of what you need to know. And sometimes if anybody ever says to me, I'd really like to be a writer, what advice can you give me? And I always say, do you read much? And if they say, no, not really, I say, I'm sorry. You know, if you want to be a concert violinist, you cannot start at the age of 21. And something similar is true of being an author. If you haven't read a few hundred novels by the time you get to your early 20s, it's too late. So that's a big thing. But on top of that, I mean, I, had, I did have, I could do action. I could do dialogue. There were some things I had to learn. When I started, I wrote 10 unsuccessful books, by the way, before I Have the Needle. So I didn't, clearly did not, even though I knew a lot, I clearly did not know enough at that <laughs> point in my life. And I had to learn to emphasize the emotion. You know, I could do two people having, a, having an argument, quarrel. I could write their dialogue, but I wasn't good at saying how they were feeling about it. That was something that I had to consciously concentrate on. Not, don't just tell the reader what happens. Tell the reader how it feels. Are they angry, indignant, scared, resentful? All of this, these emotions. Because, of course, and I, know, I now know, but I had to learn it. For the book to be successful, the reader has to share the emotions of the characters in the story. 
So when a character is scared, the reader is like this. Something sad happens in the story. There's a tear in the reader's eye. This is a miracle, of course, because the reader knows that this story was made up. Follett made it up sitting in this chair, in this room. (laughs) But it doesn't make any difference, does it? If the scene is well written, the fact that you know it never happened makes no difference. You still feel, if somebody's bullied in the story, you feel indignant. You want to bang the table and say, hey, that's not fair. (laughs) So the emotional, the reader's emotional reaction to the story is paramount. If you can do that, you've got a successful book. And if you can't do that, it won't be a bestseller. It might be, you know, it might still be a good book. It might be clever, might be witty, it might be brilliantly well-written, might be informative, but it won't be a best-selling novel if readers aren't moved emotionally by it. Interesting. So here's the whole secret. This is great. I think so. I think that's the basic secret, yeah. So I'm a little discouraged because only one of my four kids seems to be really into reading, and now I feel like I have no shot at having (laughs) perhaps one author among them, but that's it. (laughs) It's like that, though, isn't it? You know, I've got some grandchildren who are absolutely like I, as I was, fascinated by stories from a very young age, and others who would rather, you know, would rather watch TV. I've got a son, actually, stepson, who never read at all as a boy, and he is a very successful film editor. So, you know, all that time he spent in front of the TV, I thought he was wasting his time. I thought he should be reading a book. I was wrong. <laughs> it all, you know, it's, he's, he got to the age of 21 and he understood the grammar of television the way I understood the grammar of language. So you can't, you know, it's the, it's the joy of evolution, genetics, I suppose, isn't it? That your kids aren't necessarily like you. Yeah. <laughs> I know, I feel that way when my kids say they want to watch TV, this and that, and I hear about people like Simone Biles, the Olympic gymnast, who would watch hour after hour of gymnastics on TV. And that's really how she was teaching herself. And then when I'm like, oh no, 30 minutes today, I'm like, what if? What if it could be Simone Biles if I just let them watch more gymnastics or something? But anyway, you never know. <laughs> so my husband is stepdad to my four kids. And I know he's always looking for you know advice or a friendly ear for other stepdads. And since you referenced your stepchildren, I was wondering what you think some of the hallmarks of success of being a good stepdad might be, so I can give him some pointers. Well, my philosophy was, you don't need your stepchildren to like you, but you want them to trust you. They want, you want them to see you as the person they can go to and say, I've got a problem. You don't want to be their friend, because it's not that, of course, of course they, they become hugely important in your life, and you love them and they love you. But you don't try to be their friend. You don't say, we're going to be pals, son, aren't we? (laughs) That's crap. But you need to have the Advil, okay? Ken, I've got a headache. Try taking a couple of these. And then if it doesn't go away in about half an hour, we'll think again. That's the kind of thing you've got to... You've got to have the cold remedy. You've got to have the tampons, actually, because, you know, when they're teenage girls... Things happen suddenly, and or they forgot to bring any, and they get, what am I going to do? Okay, I happen to have some in my suitcase. <laughs> that, all that, condoms, I'm afraid. You are the one. You've got to be the go-to person. When mum isn't there, of course, they'll, they'll go to mum. You've got to be the go-to person 
for a problem and you've got to be equipped for that. So anticipate, make sure that what anything that's likely to go wrong that comes to you with a problem, you're going to be able to help. And then they'll think, you know, without even thinking about you, that's how you sort of grow into the parental role with your stepchildren. It isn't about being liked. It's about being trusted. Oh, no. Wow. I feel like as a mom, I'm a total failure. I don't always have all those things on, on hand. Well, certainly not the latter, but <laughs> uh, but I guess it's good to defer that to somebody else's responsibility tree, if you will. <laughs> wow. I had a question actually about the beginning. Well, it's not even technically the book, but in the beginning of the evening in the morning, you say in memoriam EF. And I was just wondering... Who is EF and, and why dedicate this book to this person? He was my son and he died. Oh. He died two years ago at the age of 49. He had leukemia. Oh, I'm so sorry. And so this is the first book that I've published since his death. And so that's why it's dedicated to him. It is the worst thing that can happen to you, to have a, a child die. It's the worst. You know, you expect, you know your parents are going to die. You expect that. It's sad when it happens, but it's not a shock. But when a child dies, it's absolutely terrible thing. So, And I didn't want to make a big fuss about it, but I did want to dedicate a book to his memory. Oh, I'm so sorry. That's Thank you. Terrible. I'm so sorry. Did you find it hard to get back into writing or, or is it more that, you know, you're so used to doing it, this is just what you do? Was it an escape for you? Did it help? Work is an escape for me. It's always been like that. If anything is going wrong in my life, then I can lose myself in the imaginary world. And it's some kind of relief and consolation, yeah. Of course, you never get over the death of a child. It's with you. It's always with you. And I think, and you know, I was 19 when my son was born. I was a very young father. And he's still in my life. I think about him every day. I think of things, I, I hear a pop song on the radio and I think he'd like that. He'd want to, he and I would talk about what the chords were, that kind of thing. And all the time, all the time that happens. So he's still in my life, even though he's passed. Oh, I'm sorry. I recently lost, not to compare in any way, but just grief in general from COVID. I recently lost my mother-in-law and step-grandmother-in-law or mother-in-law and grandmother-in-law both this summer. And my husband, whose mother it is, and his sister, you know, they keep reaching for their phones and trying to call her. And it's only been a couple of weeks for us, but, you know, everything he thinks of, he wants to tell her. And yeah. And that's the most frustrating, not the most, maybe not, but it's high on the list of frustrations for him, the not being able to reach her anymore and just thinking of her constantly and, yeah, but losing a child, I'm sorry. Do you feel like your personal things going on in your personal life affect, like, do you have that seep into your characters in some way? Do you channel those emotions? You said that was something you struggled with earlier, but obviously as life has progressed, you've developed more and more experiences and emotions yourself. Like, do you feel like you now infuse your characters with even more of that just because of life experience in a way? I think that does happen. I don't do it consciously. I don't consciously use things that have happened to me. But I find that almost without my noticing it, parts of my life do creep into the story. For example, when I first married Barbara, which is now, gosh, 35 years ago, I had never before been in what we now call a blended family. And so I married Barbara and she brought along with her three children, two teenage 
girls and uh, a little boy. And that had, this was a new experience for me. And soon afterwards, I wrote The Pillars of the Earth, which, and Tom Builder has a blended family. And I couldn't have, it wouldn't have occurred to me to do that earlier until it had happened to me. It's not that, I mean, I suppose I could have made it up, but it just didn't cross my mind that that would be an interesting thing to do and an interesting kind of family to have at the heart of a story. And once that had happened and I knew about some of the challenges and joys and and disappointments of that kind of family, then I could put one in a book. So, So yes, they do. These things creep in and eventually every major thing that happens to you will, will end up in some form in a book, maybe heavily disguised and quite possibly in a form that nobody else will recognize. But you'll think to yourself as the author, you'll think to yourself, I know why that occurred to me. It's because something similar happened to me. I know that there are a lot of authors who have a lot of success at the beginning of their careers and then feel sort of this pressure to continue churning out just as great product as in the start. And sometimes that anxiety, I feel like gets in the way, even from a big successful first book to a second book. How do you manage all of that? I mean, how do you ever like have a morning where you're like, that's it. Like my talent has run out. This book's going to be terrible. Like do you ever have that self-doubt inside? Touch wood, not yet. Certainly after Ives Needle, my first success, I thought about that a lot and I really wanted to have another success. And I was aware, of course, that quite a lot of people write one book, good book. And I knew that Eye of the Needle might have been my one good book. And I really didn't want it to be the one. I wanted to spend my life doing this. I liked it so much. And so I was aware of that danger. And then Triple was a bestseller, but I thought, yeah, but people bought that because they liked Eye of the Needle. And I thought, I'll believe it if the third book is a bestseller. And the key to Rebecca was very successful. And at that point, I said, okay, I am going to be a writer now for the rest of my life. That's going to be my career. It's going to be my life. And I was very glad. I was very glad because that was what I wanted. There is a certain amount of pressure. I don't mind it. You know, it's good pressure. It's the thought that occurs to me if I'm tempted ever to be a bit of a slacker, to say, that seems not really very good, but it's good enough. I'm tempted to think that. Then I think of all the people who really liked my last book and are looking forward to the next one. And I think, okay, am I going to risk disappointing them? Heck no. And so the, it makes me be more of a perfectionist than I might otherwise be. I'm never oppressed by it. But, you know, I mean, I... It takes a lot to discourage me. You know, I'm, I'm an optimist. My inclination always is to say, oh, let's not worry about that. That'll be okay. Don't worry. One of the, <laughs> with my stepchildren, they soon learned. They came to me and said, I really don't feel, I don't feel good. I think I should go to the doctor. I would say, you'll, you'll feel better in the morning. And they, they, of course, would then go to Barbara and, and she would say, I'll take you to the doctor. So, but I, my inclination was always to say, no, it can't be that bad. It can't be that bad. So the idea that I've got this responsibility, which I do have. So all those readers looking forward to the book, all those people in the publishing houses all over the world, you know, in, in all the different 
countries, all of those people, all those booksellers who were who thinking, oh, great, we've got a Ken Follett to sell this awesome, that'll help. All of those people, to let them down would indeed be terrible. But what I think is, yes, that would be absolutely terrible. So I, I must make sure that this is a good story. Wow. <laughs> what would you have done, do you think, if you hadn't, if the books hadn't taken off? What career might you have had? What was your fallback? Well, I, for a while, before I Have the Needle was published, for a while, I was a sort of jobbing writer. I got, a publisher would ask me to, for example, I turned a movie script into a novel for a publisher. And, that, you know, it was quite well paid. I think I got £2,000 for turning Capricorn 1 into a novel. And, you know, that would pay the bills for, for three or four months. And I knew I could do that, and I could do it well. And I thought, you know, I may have to go back to that, having written, I'm having, you know, taken my shot and written one bestseller and unable to do it anymore, then I could probably still make a living as a writer, I, I thought. That, that was plan B anyway, which fortunately never got tested by reality. <laughs> <laughs> and then how involved are you? I know The Pillars of the Earth became this eight-part miniseries and everything. How involved are you in adapting your work and how much would you like to be doing that in the future? I'm not in very closely involved. Um, they invite me to the set, which I enjoy. It's wonderful. Meet the actors. And, and of course, it's, you know, Pillars of the Earth. I arrived in Budapest, this <laughs> lot, and there is this medieval English village with a half-built cathedral in the middle of it. And all, all these guys with hammer and chisel pretending to build a cathedral. It was marvellous. It was absolutely marvellous. I loved it. It was a thrill. It was a real thrill. And it is that. It's a thrill. You're also very nervous. And I have had some, I've had some bad shows made out of my books, but not many, but mostly good, mostly good. And so, and I think, you know, there are good authors and not so good authors. There are good filmmakers and not so good filmmakers. And I've got to trust these people because one thing's for sure, I don't know as much about making a television drama as they do. So I shouldn't try and tell them what to do. I should let them do their best and I should just cross my fingers. See, I tell stories in words and they tell stories in pictures and it is a different skill. So that's been my practice is to is to say, great, over to you, and I'll come and see how you're doing, but it'll just be like a social visit. I won't try and... I won't say, no, you can't do it that way. <laughs> and by and large, that has worked for me. That's great. Are you already at work on your next book? And how long do these take to write? I mean, this is like almost a 1,000 pages. How long does each book take you? And well, three years is the norm. And actually, the evening and the morning was a little bit shorter than that. I spend a year planning, a year on the first draft, and a year on the rewrite. And that's my normal timetable. People think it's a long time. It seems a bit short to me. <laughs> it's a lot of work to get into three years. <laughs> So are you at the beginning stage of the next one or where are yes, you? Yes, I've, well, I've more past that. I finished the evening and the morning about a year ago. So I've been working on a new story since then. I don't stop. I'm not ready to talk about the new book yet. And that's partly because it, it may well change. You know, I, I, what, what the story I think it is now may be something different in a year's time. 
Have you ever thought about writing some sort of life advice book? You have such great advice and such a wit about you and all that. Maybe you should do like a little, you know, advice to graduates or to parents. I don't know, something. I don't think that's my talent, I must tell you. <laughs> I think it might be. I think it's a talent. <laughs> when you're well, procrastinating from your main work. <laughs> well, I, if the book's ever, if the novel's ever become unpopular and I can't sell them, then I, I may think about your advice. Okay. <laughs> you need a backup plan, you know, in the next two decades or something. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you so much for talking to me on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books and for sharing more about the evening and the morning, which I know, I'm sorry, we barely even talked about, but readers of yours who are huge fans will undoubtedly enjoy just as much as every other, especially because it's the prequel to one of your most popular books ever, The Pillars of the Earth. So thank you. Thanks for, thanks for all the advice, even if you don't write a book about it. <laughs> well, it's it's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you for having me on the podcast. Yeah. And I hope I'll see you again. Okay. Sounds great. Thank you, Ken. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks so much to firstbook.org for sponsoring this Labor Day Book Blast. Please consider giving to firstbook.org to help their network of 475,000 educators serving children in need. Thanks for listening to this episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens and at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Also sign up for my newsletter at ZibbyOwens.com and sign up for my virtual book club and meet lots of authors on Zoom every other week. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. Thank you.